Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, we look back at 1952 and how Britain has changed since. Really nice this. You'll remember... A few months ago when we had the state opening of Parliament, we got Jan Ravens, the impressionist from Dead Ringers, to recreate the Queen's very first speech, the state opening of Parliament, because it wasn't recorded at the time. So Jan uh, recreated it for us. It still resonates today. Patrick Maguire talks us through some of it all. Uh, we've also got uh, Venetia Mingus, who's a data journalist from The Times, to look at the numbers, crunch the data on how life in Britain changed over 70 years. Really nice chat that's coming up uh, in just a moment. In a moment, we'll hear from our columnists, India Knight and James Marriott. But I was incredibly lucky... Uh, this morning, got up very early and uh, managed to get a reporting slot to go into Westminster Hall. So this is uh, my report, essentially, uh, after I couldn't take anything into record. Uh, but when I emerged from Westminster Hall, uh, this is my report for Times Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. And we begin the show today, not from the studio, but from just outside Westminster Hall, where I've just been lucky enough to spend a few minutes watching hundreds, thousands of people streaming past the coffin of Queen Elizabeth II. And I wanted to come down early this morning to be able to describe the scene to you. It looks spectacular on the TV coverage, but nothing quite prepares you for when you walk in. See the incredible colours. It's the thing that really hit me, the colours of the, of the royal standard of the, the red carpet, the bright lights glistening on the, on the crown and the orb that sit on top of the coffin. And just no sound. They told me I couldn't record anything while I was in there, but if I had done, you wouldn't have heard it. The sound of feet shuffling along a carpet, like sort of, I don't know, distant waves at the seaside. And... At one point, I thought, I can hear something. What's that? And it was just someone clicking, the the clicking out of each person so they know just how many have come. Thousands 
have already come overnight. The queue was between two and two and a half miles. A good clear night. The thing that I found most remarkable, I suppose, and yet I probably shouldn't have dealt with, just how varied the crowd were. All ages, all ethnicities, young and old walking together, people alone, others in large groups, bringing an elderly relative through. There were dark suits, but also bright cagoules. Some were carrying their coats because it's such a mild morning. There were people in wheelchairs with people in flip-flops. It was amazingly quiet and respectful. Some nodded as they passed the coffin. A bow, a curtsy, one salute from an old chap with his beret and medals on. Some clutched a baseball cap they'd worn during the queue outside, others clutching rosary beads. And yes, grief too. I think people suddenly surprising themselves, caught by the moment and shedding a tear, quiet sobs, people anxious not to, to break the silence. A young woman bites her lip. A young man reaches out to the small of the back of the man next to him. Two big burly blokes, clearly surprised by their own reaction, one putting his arm on the shoulder of the other. And then it's 7.19am on the dot the sound of the guardsman's stick striking the floor twice, the signal for the changing of the guard. And here they come down the steps, the, the beef eaters and bear skins and the tall feathered helmets. Eventually they find their rhythm, so they're marching in time. They take their place next to those they're replacing. Another strike of the stick tells them it's time. And yet the whole thing seems slightly tense. Soldiers looking at one another, anxious to make sure they get it just right. As they performed their small ceremony, the queues stopped momentarily. Out the corner of my eye, at the top of the steps from where the soldiers had just come, a trolley of drinks and sandwiches is wheeled into a side room waiting for them. The other thing that's really struck me is it's quite difficult to say why you're here. It's a strangely, weirdly un-British thing to feel that you want to do it, you want to come. I wanted to come and tell you about it. But it's hard to sort of put into words the reason why without sounding, I don't know, soppy or daft. And yet once you're in the hall, you suddenly realise you didn't need a reason why. Standing there watching this extraordinary scene, something occurred to me. Everyone in this room is thinking about the same thing. So many people in the queue outside are. People across the country have paused in the last days to think about the same thing. And it made me think was, that was one of the things that was so strange about the pandemic. But at various points, the entire country stopped, watched the same thing, thought the same thing. And in a way, this has brought the country together in a different way, but through choice. And the other thing that struck me was no phones. There's almost no event, no occasion 
these days where it's not slightly ruined by people getting their phone out. No concerts, no party, no even passing funeral cortege in the street. And yet, here there are no phones. This is a scene which is spectacular and deeply moving and unique. And yet, it would be recognisable to anyone who saw the Queen Mother lying in state here, Winston Churchill. You could go back to 1952 and the images look the same. Britain outside Westminster Hall might have changed beyond all recognition in many ways. But maybe sometimes we do just need things to stay a bit the same. This morning I looked back at how the Times reported this scene in 1952 as thousands queued up to pay their respects to King George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father. Through the shadows of Westminster Hall, hour by hour, from early morning until far into the night, flows the stream of King George's subjects to make the last offering of respect to their ruler and in thought of every one of them, their friend. If there were voices, they speak in whispers. The feet on the carpeted floors make no more sound than rustling leaves. Each carries past the king's body his secret thoughts. But as the serene beauty of the scene before them exerts its spell, there is a community of deep emotion. The king was the symbol of the people's unity while he lived. He unites them still. They all have their memories, some crowded and intimate. For among the pilgrims are men and women who have held great responsibilities in the state. Some have clasped the king's hand once and treasured the recollection of the words he spoke. Some think only of a figure seen on some great day of pageantry or hear again the well-loved hesitant voice giving cheer and comfort to their hearth at Christmas. But all alike, the picture is of the same qualities of courage and steadfastness, of dedication to the laborious service of others, of swift sympathy and understanding. Few of those who walk by can escape some reflection upon the transitoriness of all human creatures, not only of kings, but of themselves who pass in the presence of their dead sovereign and go their ways. There in Westminster Hall, they've had a glimpse of some transfigured reality compared with which the streams of mourners show as an illusion no more than an eddy in the endless stream of time the columnists with night at the marriott india night and james marriott on times radio yes it's that time of the week where we try to work out if james is here and he is today james is here i decided to surprise you but I may disappear at any moment. Well, you have disappeared. You've disappeared off social media again. Yeah, I ha- it was my sort of, my kind of annual break time for social media. Every September is a little bit of a Get off James Twitter. James detox, yeah. Oh, there we are. And here, through all of your holidays, we've still had India Night. Morning, India. Good morning. Uh, you're, now, uh, India, you've been glued to the telly. Yes, I've been glued to the telly for coming up on a week. But, why? I and can't. I don't say that because I don't understand it. I'm just interested in your personal reason. Well, it started off last Thursday afternoon out of, you know, concern and kind of interest. But ever since, I've become more and more fixated with it as the days have gone by. I'm really, I'm really moved by it all. 
Um, and I think it's partly to do with the fact I was thinking yesterday, looking at the coffin on the catafalque in Westminster Hall. I w- and all, I also had this thought um, uh, in Scotland. Gosh, Scotland did the Queen so proud, I think. But in Scotland, when the children were like the four compass points, you know, when they were doing that vigil. And part of it, I think, is that if you stripped everything away, all the pomp and all the pageantry and all of the stuff, what you're left with is something deeply ancient feeling. You know, they, you know, I don't know. I just feel that for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, mourning a monarch or a ruler or an important person has been sort of done in this way. And so the kind of historicness of it is really fascinating to me. And also, I mean, I'm so moved by it. I'm I'm so moved by it that I'm watching the live feed of the people in Westminster Hall and, you know, frequently find myself welling up. It's extraordinary. It is. It, the whole thing is is extraordinary. And I think it's... a. <sighs> It's, it's, I think it's because some people have been sort of not that many, but we get some messages of people saying it's all been over the top. But I think so many people are, have been genuinely moved by it at different times and they don't always align. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Um, but mm. uh, what about you, James? Have you been aware? Did you, did yeah, you, did I you sort of miss where it? Where were you? Yeah, I, I found out on the train between Milan and Turin, which felt like a very kind of un British way to experience the, the death of the Queen. And, um, I, 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 you, you guys might have had this too, but if you know, if you know journalists, journalists are always convinced they've got the special news beforehand. So I had all kinds of reports and rumours on WhatsApp, and then my phone died just before I got into Turin Station. So uh, my, me and my girlfriend had to race to our Airbnb, um, and then we found out we found out there, um, which was and kind then of weird. Were you glued I... to the telly? Did you did you did you spend the beginning of your holiday watching a screen? Yeah. So we, I think. Yeah, we were standing in a street in Turin when the when the announcement finally came. Watching watching the BBC on on my girlfriend's phone. It was wow. really, it was really weird. Yeah, were they interested in Italy? Was it sort of wall? Everybody, everybody. There, there was um, what's the Italian? La Stampa was the newspaper. A huge picture of the Queen's face on everywhere. I spotted. We walked down a street and there were. I don't know if this was a sort of weird freak. There were about six people reading this newspaper. Everybody talked to us about it as soon as they got that we were English. It sort of. I felt a bit weird being out the country for it, but also I did. That was also kind of weird connection. You kind of felt that in this random corner of Turin, this was still a really big deal for people living in Turin, just as much as it was yeah. for you know for me. Mm. No, it has been, uh, yeah. And I've I've sort of dipped in and out of it, and and and, it t- and then you know I managed to, you know incredibly lucky to go down to Westminster Hall today, and it is just extraordinary. It's amazing. Um, and uh, speaking to people afterwards, they all said, you know, it was incredible. These people were eight eight nine hours last night. Mm. And they said it was worth it. And they couldn't really explain why, because it's such a really un-British... Americans would be going completely over the top about why it was so... Nobody could quite put into words why they wanted to be there. Yeah, uh, I it's mean... really in... interesting. Oh, sorry, sorry, carry on. No, I was being boring, you say. <laughs> I was being quite boring. I was, I was, <laughs> to, I was going to say the contrast, the, the kind of correctness of the people passing through Westminster Hall is really striking to me. And the the feeling generally, you know, the only thing in my lifetime that I can compare it to is the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, where, again, there was this very British kind of much more American, actually, semi-hysterical outpouring of emotion. And this is much more kind of contained mm. and reverent. It's really interesting. Everything about it is really interesting, I yeah. think. Yeah, 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 the psychology of it all. And Yeah, I, I couldn't really put into words when I'm doing the bit for the start of the show, why why I wanted to go down and, and, and describe it all. 
but then it sort of doesn't matter. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's yeah. move on and talk about other things because uh, we've talked about, I've talked about this on the show a bit. I turned 40 next weekend, not this weekend, next weekend. And the, for some maybe I'm just hyper aware of it. Or maybe I'm being taunted by my colleagues on the Times. But every day there's another thing about the looming <laughs> midlife crisis. Yesterday it was uh, from 40 to 45. It's peak awfulness, apparently. 45, I'm sort of on an uphill trajectory to midlife crisis. Today, though, apparently it's your early 50s. So maybe it is sort of, you know, it's shifting further into the distance. Um, what, what, what's your take on this, uh, India? I did, I'm just trying to think if I had a midlife crisis. I don't <laughs> think I did, actually. I was very, I was fine with being 40, although I thought 40 was ancient. I now think 40 is like, you know, a baby. Thank um, you. Correct. 40, yeah, no, you've got a long way to go. You're good. Everything's going to be all right. Um, 45, for some reason, I was quite sort of struck by. M- more than 40 or 50. Don't know why. And then early 50s. See, I did, I, I think it's quite good to kind of give yourself an adventure. So when I was... 49 I moved out of London where I'd lived all my life and came to live in the country and that was very kind of invigorating so maybe yeah. I swerved it maybe I swerved the early 50s midlife crisis or maybe 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 I'm going through it and I'm not aware of it I don't know <laughs> maybe but, maybe, um, maybe that was your midlife crisis moved to the countryside and then in a yeah, year or two you yeah it was a good one in that case yeah but I suppose that's the thing but maybe it's and I suppose maybe it's just that idea that you just do something different yeah, I think it's the idea. I think the problem with midlife crises is the feeling that, you know, is that all there is? Is yeah. this it? Is all the good I, stuff over? Do I just over? kind of vegetate? Do I vegetate in place for the next, yeah. you know, 40 years? And actually, if you do something, if you have some sort of adventure, no matter how small, then I think you swerve that feeling quite neatly. Uh, now, James, you you barely got had your quarter-life crisis. No, I have a midlife crisis every birthday, I think. <laughs> Um, stay. How old are you? I mean, I keep making jokes about the fact you're 12. How old are you? I'm almost 30. I'm turning 30 in like a month. Are you? Yep. Um, we, should, we, should be, we should be having James. a joint party. We should, well, yeah, well, I was very offended you didn't ask. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm convinced... We could have gone bowling together. <laughs> are we not doing that? <laughs> Don't tell me you're going to... I was going to ask you that. It's been yeah, summing up the courage have, we to... Have four, we're going to have four friends each. Can India come? We can bring India. Yeah, India could come. And who, we'll who's, who's, who's French <laughs> counting as, though? I'm brilliant at bowling. Are you? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm back to India. We should definitely do that. We should get all the Times columnists. We should all go bowling. That would be Other a very... Good <laughs> for the socials. Yeah, I, we can film... <laughs> <laughs> do a live Times radio report. <laughs> Danny Finkelstein. I feel like he'd be good Danny, at bowling. Danny would, would definitely need the buffers down, I think. Do you think? I kind yeah. of view him as... Do you think he'd maybe, be good? Maybe I'd need the buffers. I would need the buffers. But seeing it as my uh, birthday Ivanovich, party, I would... Ivanovich would probably turn up with his own ball. Yeah, polished in a special, <laughs> in a special little, in a special little bag. <laughs> that was an amazing snort. Sorry, that so why are you always having a midlife crisis? I'm convinced that because I'm very baby-faced, people always assume that I'm younger than I am, and when I tell people how old I actually am, they get really shocked, and then I go and think, "Oh my god, is it shocking?" Your reaction was not comforting. No, well, you were I've, horrified. I've had the same thing for a long, less so now. I was gonna, I was gonna talk to. You. I think we're kind of fellow baby-faced men, perhaps. Yeah, slightly, and we've been through this together. Slightly podgy, soft face, <laughs> wimps. <laughs> it's a great look. It's a great look. <laughs> managed to carry through life for a long time. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm just really excited about going bowling now. Hey, um, if this doesn't happen, I'm going to be really sad. Uh, if only because it means I can quote my favourite uh, Harry and Paul sketch: "The bank is the bonuses. The bank is the bonuses." Uh, let's talk about that, India. The um, 
That's the, the question time spoof that Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse did. Um, there was a time when all we talked about was the bankers and the bonuses. Uh, and now the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, wants to scrap a limit on bankers' bonuses to boost London's attractiveness to top talent. I think this is a very, very poor idea indeed. I'm against bankers having bigger bonuses. And I think that um, it sits grotesquely with the cost of living crisis and the um, anxiety and fear even that people are living under in regards to their bills. And I think giving already very wealthy people access to indefinitely large bonuses is just revolting, revolting. There are more than enough people working in London. There are more than people enough people working in the city of London. They seem to be doing all right. You know, let's leave it at that. That's what I think. I mean, really. And the timing of it, it's just really, it's just, ah, no, I, it's awful. It's awful. It's an awful thought. But also it's... Because it's, why? 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 <laughs> I just don't... What, what evidence so is there that money? London is unattractive? Yeah, and I mean, the argument, banks are clearly, I don't think, have any problem attracting you know, extremely talented graduates who want to earn millions of millions of pounds. I think the only thing this ends up doing is, as people have been saying, incentivizing the really kind of dodgy, risky mm. behavior from people yes, who are precisely. desperately yeah, yeah, chasing yeah, yeah, those yeah. high bonuses at the high end of the mm. sort of, you know, top end of um, bankers' earnings. And that, I mean, that just seems more economically dangerous. I mean, that's kind of financial crash behavior, not boost the economy exactly. behavior that we seem to be incentivizing there. Yeah, and I thought yes, and it just seems it just seems so retro, and yeah, you know, we still don't know how much or how they're going to pay for this energy bill. We still thing. don't know so how why it's going to they... work. We still don't actually know how the plan yeah. is going to work. How how so... you know, is it going to work? How are business going to get help? And so they seem more concerned about bankers' bonuses than than businesses not going bust. And the political calculation makes no sense. I don't get the PR idea behind this at all. Yeah. And again, you know, if I were a banker, which thank goodness I'm not, but, you know, they've just, <laughs> the, the, the sort of demonisation of bankers is just sort of slightly recovered, you know. Um, yeah, and it's that, just yeah. going to, you know, it's just no good for anybody. No, it's no good for anybody. We're good. I'm glad we've, we've, cleared, yeah. we've cleared all that up. Uh, Lindsay's been in touch saying, like James, I was in Italy when news of the Queen dying broke. Like James, it felt weirdly unpatriotic to not be in the UK. I was so grateful for the sensitive, non-sickly coverage of all the Times radio presenters. That was nice. Uh, which is almost praise, which I've read out, which I don't normally do. And Chris says, when I was a lad, I saw the cover of a Sunday supplement entitled The Queen at 40, commemorating mm. her 40th birthday. I thought that was really old at the time. She had another 56 years. Uh, way to go, Matt. Thanks for that, Chris and Barnett. And then on uh, Bankers, somebody's just texted in saying, India has absolutely na- nailed it. My exact reaction this morning. Although that could be anything. It could be any of the <laughs> things. The bankers. That, that, yeah, the bankers, the bankers. And so, yeah, someone else suggested we should definitely go bowling, but only if we record it. Well, yeah, we've got to go. There's something in there. Record my triumph. So 10 people and me, somebody won't come, and we'll all go bowling. Yes. The 10 column, fine, we're on it, we're on it. (laughs) Let's make that happen before Christmas. (laughs) Indian Night and James Marriott, then, of course, you can read them both in the Times of your week. Uh, There's a sale on the moment. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox and subscribe. Up next... We compare 1952 to today. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So how has Britain changed during the 70 years of Queen Elizabeth's reign? Last week, we got a new one monarch and a new prime minister. And we reflected on uh, how a week is a long time in politics. But what about seven decades? Now, you may remember... Uh, early this year, we unpacked uh, Queen Elizabeth's first speech, the state opening of Parliament. Uh, the speech wasn't recorded at the time, so we've got the brilliant impressionist and friend of the show, Jam Ravens, to record it for us instead. So what we thought we'd do is we'd revisit it, that speech from 70 years ago, and reflect on as many possible ways as we can in the next 25 minutes just how much life has changed. I'm joined in the studio by Times Red Box editor, Patrick McGuire. Morning, Mark. Good to see you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Venetia Mingus, dated a digital journalist of the Times and the Sunday Times. Morning. Morning. Nice to see you too. Uh, clutching lots of... Lot, see, this is the difference. Venetia turned up with clutching reams of paper and facts and figures and Patrick McGuire, absolutely nothing. It's all in here. It's all in here. It's all in here. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, right, let's go back then and hear a little bit of that first uh, speech recreated by Jan Ravens, Queen Elizabeth's first address to Parliament when she read out the accession declaration. Elizabeth, do solemnly and sincerely, in the presence of God, profess, testify, and declare that I am a faithful Protestant, and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers according to law. So that's how it began, Patrick. Uh, reference there to being a Protestant. And actually, once again, you know, it's interesting that last week we've all become very familiar with uh, King Charles reasserting his, his role as the defender of the faith. Defender of the faith, head of the established church. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because on one hand, yes, that's true. And the church is still established, albeit um, our status as an Anglican country is, is ebbing away. Church attendance is falling. But that institutional link remains. And if you're a Catholic, you're still... Uh, excluded from the line of succession. So if Prince George suddenly got very into Cardinal Newman or whatever, he wouldn't become king, uh, but, but perhaps they changed the law. But the interesting thing, talking about the Protestant succession, and particularly after you know Rangers fans held up their mosaic as the, of the Queen last night, that idea of you know a very Protestant United Kingdom, one of the most striking scenes this week has been Prince Charles bantering with Alex Maskey, former veteran Sinn Féin politician, now the Speaker of the Stormont Assembly, and Michelle O'Neill, the um, you know de uh, First Minister-elect of Northern Ireland, or would-be First Minister and leader of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, bantering them with them warmly, freely, them warmly receiving him. And these are the politicians who represent a party whose terrorist wing killed the greatest love of his life, uh, Lord Mountbatten. Yeah. Um, so, yes... You know, we're looking at a Protestant kingdom, but the demographics have changed. Religious observance have changed. A much more multicultural country. He's very interested in Islam. And crucially, the, the great bastion of Protestantism in this country, Northern Ireland, has changed beyond all recognition since then. And I think if you did a sort of an audit of the people queuing up at Westminster Hall, you know, all faiths and none are represented there as well. Yes, it's, definitely. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. 
And what about um, uh, fifteen prime ministers, fourteen U.S. presidents, seven popes, and yet you know ups and downs and all of that. But the, the Queen remarkably popular throughout that whole time. Yeah, that's right. She's actually had consistently higher satisfaction ratings than almost every politician since the 90s, the only Prime Minister to have had higher satisfaction ratings than her, and it was very short-lived. Go on, let's have a guess. Boris Johnson during COVID? No. Tony Blair? Yes. No. You got it. Um, and when was that? Was that very early, the Tony Blair? Very early, yeah. just just after his election, and lasted less than a year. Wow. It's interesting, Boris Johnson, even when Boris Johnson was ill in hospital, because his ratings obviously went through the roof then as well. I think that's, that's an interesting reminder, though, of the nature of the constitutional nature of the modern monarchy, right? It serves, it's almost, you know, the, uh, the Parliament swears its allegiance to the Crown, but in many ways the Crown is constrained, well, constitutionally yeah. the Crown is constrained by Parliament, right? And Tony Blair, arguably, there is a case that he is the man that sort of saved the modern monarchy by basically getting Buckingham Palace to... Yeah. Recalibrate its in response to yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. to uh, Diana's death. It's that whole thing that you know the, the monarchy hasn't changed at all, and yet it's changed constantly. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And what about what? What do we know about the sort of people who support the monarchy and what they might tell us about the future as well, Venetia? Well, from the most recent poll in Britain of adults, I mean, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, support was highest amongst Conservative voters, the older generations, the white population, people living in England, and those who owned their homes outright. Whereas the share of those supporting a monarchy was much lower for Labour voters, younger generations, ethnic minorities, people renting homes, and of course the Scots, <laughs> for uh, reasons yes, which are which are well known. Let's talk about let's dig into a bit of like how Britain has changed uh, now. Then, uh, and you know, we talk about older generations preferring the monarchy. I mean, there are just more older people than there were back in 1952. Absolutely. I mean, we've had so many changes, it's hard to detail them all. We've gone from a world of outside toilets to TikTok addicts. I mean, <laughs> in, in the seven decades... They're she's... not necessarily mutually exclusive. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> perhaps. We're all out a certain amount of sitting on the toilet, scrolling through TikTok, to bring those two things together. At least we'll be warm indoors when yeah. we do it now. Um, but yeah, uh, six, 76 million people have been born under her reign and 59 million people have died. That was great fun working out. And we've had lots of changes to the population. They're much older, as you say. In in the 50s, just over 11% of Britons were aged 65 and over, and this is now 18%. Life expectancy. Do you know what? That's actually not as big a change as I was expecting. Mm. Weird. I, mean, I suppose it is a big change, but 11% to 18%. It's, um, yeah, anyway. I suppose I just... numerically, right, it's a, it will be a lot of old Well, people. that's the other thing. I suppose if you've gone from 76 million people who have been born... And fifty-nine million have died, plus immigration. So the the, the sheer numbers of older people, that extra seven percent, is probably millions more. Mm, and the share of people under tens and newborns has drastically dropped as well. Yes. Um, life expectancy has increased to over eighty years. I mean, this has actually stagnated in the past ten years since austerity. But and what was it back in the fifties? Life uh, expectancy. Um, much less. Much less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, our population, as you say, is much more diverse. There were 1.9 million residents in England and Wales who were born outside the UK in 1951, whereas today that's 7.5 million yeah, people. Yeah. Um, and that all adds to the uh, to the light, to the to the age profile of the of the country as well. Uh, let's talk about the economy now, because obviously it's you know it's, it's the thing that we would be talking about were it not for the events of the last week, cost of living crisis, state of the economy, all the way back in 1952. Uh, the late uh, Queen Elizabeth, the new then Queen Elizabeth, addressing the state opening of Parliament, as voiced up here by Jan Ravens, talking about, it's incredible, 
employment, productivity, inflation. Let's take a listen. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, my Government will proceed resolutely with the task of placing the national economy on a sound foundation. They will not hesitate to take any further steps necessary to hold and improve the more favourable position now reached in our overseas payments. My ministers will encourage all engaged in agriculture, mining and industry to cooperate in increasing productive efficiency and thus to produce at lower cost the goods needed at home and by the export trades. In the interests of the employment and the standard of living of my people, my government will persevere with measures to curb inflation and to reduce the heavy load of government expenditure. Patrick McGuire, that could be read today. The government will take action on inflation and curb public expenditure. Yes, uh, uh, the, you know, that could have been taken. Liz Truss could have written that speech, couldn't she? Um, I find what I find interesting thinking about the Queen saying, "My government will do this." Is the levers are still there? All the same policy levers are still there, but one of the massive changes in the past uh, seventy years has been the independence of the Bank of England. Yeah. You know, no minister could get up and say, I oh, will definitely curb inflation now. Well, they would in that, you know, no prime minister is going to say I'm, I'm helpless to do it. But now it's not just a case of the Queen's or the King's ministers doing it. You've got the Bank of England and that relationship is fraught. That's one of the great constitutional innovations and changes of the past uh, 50, uh, sorry, 70 years, isn't it? Yeah. And I suppose that's that's the... The same problems are there. The solutions, or the, like you said, the levers, not all of them uh, uh, still exist in the same way. And what, what about the changes in the economy? Because the economy in 70 years has been up and down and in, in, you know, been through boom and bust many times, despite occasionally politicians Venetia claiming they were going to abolish it. Exactly. We've had five recessions over the past seven decades. There was the oil supply shock of 73 and again in 79. And we all remember the financial crisis in 2008. But the deepest of these recessions was actually during the pandemic when the economy shrank by more than 9%. And is it now we could be possibly heading for another recession, but we would hope not on that, not necessarily on that scale. But I suppose another reminder that these things, you know, everyone says there's a recession coming and that's a very bad thing. But these things are pretty cyclical. They come around, they, they sort of reasonable, similar intervals. Yeah, you could say that. And at least with uh, inflation, as you mentioned, with the Bank of England's independence, it's a lot less volatile now that it's being managed. So you could say that we're in a better place to deal with the boom and bust cycle, hopefully. And and their effect on the politics tends to recur in cycles too, right? Every government that was in power in the Western world, more or less, at the time of the oil shock in 1973, then lost power at the subsequent election. So... That's similarly the financial crash in 2007, 2008. Exactly. So, and then, but in both 2008 and 1974 in the February, there were very, very tight hung parliaments mm. that required, well, the second one didn't because there was a clear path to a majority for the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats. In the first instance, that was a much more tense period. Yeah. So you, you, it does raise the prospect of an extended, um, not an interregnum in the proper sense of the word, but a political interregnum where, who knows, yeah. King Charles may be called upon to make a political decision and actually you're right that it sort of doesn't matter which color of party is in power at this moment 
it's possible that we could see a repeat of that right across Europe. It's the whoever's in power when the, the, the cost of living crisis hit. Yes, exactly. There could be that sort of sweeping out. Uh, let's move on and talk about, because one of the big constants, uh, certainly for the Queen, was the, the Commonwealth, you know, emerging from you know, the era of empire into the Commonwealth. In a speech to Parliament, uh, the Queen uh, said it was key to build a relationship with the countries involved. My ministers are determined to make ever closer that cooperation with the other members of the Commonwealth and with the colonial empire, which must be the keystone of our policy. To this end, they have invited Commonwealth Prime Ministers to meet together this month to confer on vital problems of finance, commerce and economic policy. Um, Venetia, take us through uh, the, how the world has changed uh, since 1952. Um, since then, 48 countries that were formerly part of the British Empire have gained their independence, and many of them did choose to join the Commonwealth. Um, within the Commonwealth, the British monarch is head of state in only 15 of those nations, um, including Britain, of course, whereas most of them are republics. And during her time, five countries have left the Commonwealth and later rejoined, for example, South Africa, whereas others have permanently withdrawn. Um, the first to leave was the Republic of Ireland and most recently was Barbados in 2021. It's amazing that 48 countries gained independence during her reign. You sort of think of it being a, a thing that happened a very long time ago, you know, but then it was a long time ago, so it was 1952. And she travelled a lot as well. You've been totting up all the places the, the late Queen went to. Yeah, she made almost 300 state visits to 138 countries. The top destinations were Canada, Australia and New Zealand, all with 10 or more official trips. It's amazing, it's amazing. Um, although, uh, Patrick, well, let, we'll take a listen to this, actually. We'll talk about clearly Britain's relationship with Europe mm. has been uh, such a massive part of the last 70 years as well. But let's take a listen. This is, uh, again, voiced up by Jan Ravens, uh, the, very first, uh, the Queen's very first speech to the State Opening of Parliament. It will be my government's aim to strengthen the unity of Europe. They will work in close association with our neighbours in Western Europe and give all possible support to their efforts to forge closer links with one another. My ministers will continue to work for the conclusion of an Austrian state treaty and for a fair and equitable settlement of the problem of German unity. Patrick, I mean, it's been an extraordinary... You know, everything that the Queen saw in terms of Britain's relationship with Europe, coming off the back 1952, not that long off the back of the Second World War. Yeah, well, look, seeing Britain's entry into the European community, uh, seeing those closer links forged that those uh the constitutional conservatives in this country would have said put the entire order entire constitutional order of this country in peril like the maastricht treaty the lisbon treaty and then being on the throne for britain's eventual withdrawal in this new period of um diplomatic hostility with europe and with a couple of exceptions she she managed to remain entirely above the fray um you know you think of that sun front page from whenever it was 2017 or 2016 that alleged she had uh, said privately that she she backed Brexit, but other than that, there was n she was never embroiled in what was really a 
quite a fundamental argument about the sovereignty of this country. And it, that, that, I always found that fascinating that it never, the sovereignty of the crown was never really contested unless you were, say, Enoch Powell and you were really into the weeds of the argument. Nobody ever deployed the Queen for either side. I found that very interesting. I, I wonder whether it's slightly because the dominant countries in Europe didn't have a monarchy, mm. there wasn't a sort of alliance between... Do you know what I mean? If, if you had had a King of France or a King of Germany, for instance... You would have had a, say, uh, you know, 16th, 15th century sort we'd of... Have been reading, or we'd been reading into the number of visits they made to each other or the amount... Mm. Do you know what I mean? And, and actually because... The French president's a you know uh, day-to-day politician who comes and goes. That 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 sort of yeah, and indeed you know Germany Germany has a president who we never hear from exactly. because they are merely a ceremonial rubber stamper without yeah, yeah, the yeah. Uh, without the crowns and gowns. Yeah, without um, the longevity that comes. Yes, with it totally. As well. Yeah. Well, listen, it's absolutely fascinating. I feel like I'm learning loads. Still joined in the studio by Patrick Maguire and uh, Venetia Mingus, uh, taking us through how life in Britain has changed in the past seventy years. Uh, since Queen Elizabeth uh, took the throne in 1952. Uh, we are revisiting her very first speech to uh, the state opening of Parliament in 1952, not recorded at the time, revoiced for us uh, by Jan Ravens. Uh, it's amazing how many how many of the issues that were, uh, were, were top of the agenda back in 1952 are still there now, whether it's the relationship with Europe, uh, the future of the Commonwealth, uh, the economy, inflation, and, uh, would you believe it, energy too. The question of the supply of electricity in Scotland is being attentively examined with a view to legislation. Uh, so that was particularly to do with uh, power supplies in Scotland, with power supplies everywhere that people are worried about now, Patrick. Yes, I think I, I recall when we discussed this um, at the state opening of Parliament, we focused on the Scottish dimension rather than the energy supplies dimension. Uh, and now both are uh, rearing their ugly heads in Westminster debate. But, yeah, our energy security is an entirely different kettle of fish. Uh, not that anyone can afford to boil a kettle of fish in a minute. <laughs> because then we were, you know, still big producers of domestic coal. Uh, that's exactly why the miners could bring down heath in the 70s, because of the, not just because of the oil shop, but because we were almost entirely dependent on coal-fired power stations. And obviously since then, the mines have closed with all the social and economic consequences for parts of the country. That has entailed... And we now have a much more diverse energy base, don't we? So um, our energy security has been sort of uh, very exposed in in recent months. Um, But it's an entirely different set of problems to the ones we may have faced then, which... And actually, probably focused on the labour. Yeah, 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 yeah. that was a question of the labour market. Really, yeah, yeah. can you get the coal out of the ground? Now it's can you get the gas into the country? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, no doubt we'll talk, we'll talk about a lot about that next week uh, when uh, when politics uh, resumes. Let's look more a bit more society of issues to where take us through some of the things that you found. I mean, my my guess would be fewer marriages than in 1952. Definitely, the prevalence of marriage has fallen quite a lot, gradually decreasing from the 1970s onwards. Um, There's also different types of marriages. Today, there are increasingly more civil ceremonies than religious weddings, which reflects the share of the religious population falling. And indeed, sorry, just to put in, our king had a civil had a civil marriage in yeah, 2005 to yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I suppose that's a reflection. And again, we were talking about the decline of religions and different faiths, and I suppose that all feeds into it as well. 
Yeah, and also more bad news, I suppose, depending on your view, divorce rates rose after the Divorce Reform Act in 1971 and the number of births fell after abortion was legalised. We've also seen changes in the law, such as gay marriage, which was legalised in 2013 in England and Wales, uh, the year after in Scotland, but not until 2019 in Northern Ireland. And uh, what about, let's talk about, talking about babies. Um, you looked at baby names. Uh, the Queen, and in particular, because I think this is really interesting, I, the psychology of people naming their baby off of something that was in the news at that precise moment, I think is fascinating. Yeah, d despite her being consistently popular with the population, uh, Elizabeth as a name for a baby girl has actually become less common throughout her reign. It peaked in 1954, the year after her coronation. It was the eighth most popular baby girl's name at the time. But by 2020, which is the most recent data, it had fallen to 56th. And the name that's been topping the baby names for girls for the past five years is Olivia. Is it? Mm. Have you got the stats from Megan with an H? <laughs> no, I don't. It's not in there. It's ah, not in the top 100, predictably, I'm afraid. Predictably. Well, we'll Ma wait for 2021. Ma Matthew has been a, a, a stalwart. A, har a hardy perennial. A hardy perennial for some time. Um, I don't know where Patrick... Uh... Well, look, in, in certain... Uh, in certain Belfast and Liverpool and Glasgow postcode, it's all the range oh, but in on. the rest of the country. Hang on, tricky. I think I might be able to look it up. On the ONS website. Oh, there we are. Where are we? Oh, you're going to have to download the data. I've got the massive, this, hang on, this spreadsheet is absolutely enormous. Yeah. We'll come back. Oh, no, here we are. Oh, no, the John Patrick, you know what that is. Uh, no, the, the spreadsheet is much too big. The well, spreadsheet is much too life. big. <laughs> <laughs> what other things leapt out for you, particular things that you doing this? Because this piece is amazing. I'll, I'll tweet a link to it in just a sec so other people can see it. What other things really struck you when you're looking through it, Venetia? Oh, well, there's some positive things. Obviously, the role of woman has become much more prominent since she took the throne. In the early 50s, women represented only 26% of the labour force and just over 1% of them went to university. Whereas today, female employment rate is 72%. There's far more female graduates than male, and predictably, we get much better grades. Um, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> it's what the data shows. You can't argue. <laughs> Don't argue with the data. <laughs> it was actually only in 1971 that it became illegal to pay men more than women working in the same role. There's obviously still, still quite a way to go with the gender pay gap, but it has narrowed. Last year, the median hourly pay for full-time employees was 8% lower for women than men, but that is quite a long shot better. You know, we've had our first female Prime Minister, Thatcher, in 79. Now, of course, we've had three. We had a female Speaker of the House, Betty Boothroyd, in 92. Um, if we look at just the MPs sitting in Parliament, in 1952, there were only 17 female MPs, and today there are 225, which is still only a third of the seats in the Commons, but it's a far shot better. Is it, is, is a, but I suppose further evidence of how things, you know, times have changed. Um, would you like to see, Patrick, who is the most popular uh, name? Uh, what, between you and I? Yeah. Well, I think you've beaten me, surely. I don't know. Let's have a look. Hang on. So rank and then count. So I think uh, only just. I think Matthew last year was one hundred and four uh, in twenty twenty one hundred and fourteenth, and uh, Patrick was one hundred and seventeenth. Wow! Ooh. I think Matthew's fallen out of fashion. He used to be quite. Yeah, in fact, it did look so. It That's looked, higher than I thought for Patrick. You know, uh, if you go back to the year two thousand, Matthew was ninth. What's going on? What have you done, Patrick? Sixth. <laughs> Was it, yeah, Pat, uh, yeah, you've become more popular. Matthew and Patrick, two good saints' names. It's our godless society. <laughs> you know, it's names like uh, Tyler and Mason and Kai are all the rage now, are they? <laughs> 
if you're called Tyler and you want to get in touch with Patrick, uh, do get in touch hey, with that him. Was, that was, yeah, I, wasn't, I wasn't judging. No, I'd love to have a name that, that fashionable. Um, uh, just while I've got you, Venetia, somebody's texted it. I don't think it was part of anything that you were talking about because I think you were quite clear in terms of is this UK or England and Wales? But someone says, why Why is it always England and Wales figures given? Do people in the rest of England have to just get, guess the answers to the same studies? The Queen was a Queen for the whole of the UK, not just England. Is it is it easy? I mean, I know, having used the Office of National Statistics, they only do England and Wales exactly. and their website is better. Well, it's the bane of my existence, the <laughs> fact that they collect statistics in different regions differently. So where there is, you know, comparable data, we will always make the time to get England and Wales from the ONS... Scotland from the Scottish and Northern Ireland, but often it's really just not comparable. So you just can't make conclusions for the whole of the UK. I, I will join this individual's <laughs> lobbying campaign for UK statistical data collection. Quite right too. Quite right too. Just three babies called Venetia in 2020. Really? Yeah. Get you're, rid of them. You're 5,493rd. That's brilliant. There we are. Uh, it reminds me, we did this exercise in 2017 or 2018 with the 2017 figures, and there were a few Corbins, yeah, there were a few Jeremys, and not a single Nigel was born in 2016. I remember exactly. Although oh, might be, is it because there's, there's, there's never um, you need a certain number of them to count. It might be like maybe three. It's three, three. I think three is the minimum. More. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, so thought I made the cut. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody, Susanna says, what's happened to reduce popularity of the name Matthew? Perhaps a certain former health secretary is to blame. <laughs> we should definitely look into this. Why is Matthew dropped from? What was it? I was in the top ten, and now I'm down to this. Is, this is it. This is an eleven for another quiet week. <laughs> Baby, no, no, genuinely, yeah. Because good saints' names, you hear fewer and fewer of them. Right, Vinicius, can you I'll get, pitch can it you to get the onto editors, this? Yeah. Get onto this. What's happened to Matthew? That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from?